Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. Much of the world is in lockdown again as the United Kingdom, France, and Germany close their borders. And other countries are expected to follow suit. But in the Caribbean, some countries are actually opening. I speak to the Prime Minister of St. Kitts and Nevis, which managed to successfully limit the number of cases and is now reopening to Americans. Then I'll talk with the Mayor of Dubrovnik in Croatia, one of the few countries in the European region that has remained open to visitors during the pandemic. And then, for the rest of us considering road trips in the U.S., my discussion with Michael Cannell, author of A Brotherhood Betrayed, a great history of the New York Mafia, and where and how they travel. First up, Timothy Harris, Prime Minister of St. Kitts. Every week on the show, we try to tell you which 
countries are open, which countries are closed. That list changes almost by the hour. Uh, sometimes it changes twice by the hour. Uh, it's a very fluid situation around the world. Uh, my next guest knows all about this because as of today, he's opening to the world. Uh, please welcome the Honorable Prime Minister of St. Kitts, Timothy Harris. Mr. Prime Minister, welcome. Thank you very much for having me on your show, Peter. And you're opening today. Yes, today is the grand opening of St. Kitts and Nevis to the rest of the world. It has come after we have done a very successful job in containing the spread of COVID virus. And in fact, we have one of the lowest rates of infection around the world. Of that, we are very pleased. So that the guests coming in can be assured that we have done all we can to keep our residents and citizens safe, and we are doing the very same thing for them. Well, I remember, sir, that uh, back in March, I was doing this radio show from the Four Seasons in, in Nevis, and uh, I got to the airport, and everybody was looking at me like, you're one lucky guy, because I think I got out on the last flight and uh, have not been back since, but looking forward to coming back and seeing you. So tell me this, if you can, what is it that you did that maybe other island nations didn't do to have such a good record of, of, of basically containing the spread of the disease? Well, thank you for that. I think we acted early. And very early o'clock, our chief medical officer had seen that what was evolving then around the world and in China had potential for us in the region. And so she had put a small team together under what we call the Emergency Health Operations Center. That core team was doing the monitoring and developing protocols very early in the event that COVID was to have arrived in St. Kitts and Nevis. When in fact it did then, we were ahead in terms of our knowledge, ahead in terms of our structure. So immediately we expanded what was then a health response to a broader national response, which we call the all-of-society approach. And we brought the key functionary, immigration, police, law and other elements all over the country, and the economic stakeholders, the churches, under, as it were, one roof, where information was being shared and agreements made as to how we would move forward very quickly. When some countries were vacillating about whether or not to close borders, we close our borders and we engage in a number of actions to prevent and contain the spread. Locking down the country four times for a two-week period. All these things that we did were hurtful in the beginning, but it also shocked the country very early into realizing the danger and so once we have got people in a good frame, wearing their masks, doing the hand hygiene, and the business community making the necessary changes for social distancing, etc., we were felt very comfortable that we were at a good pace and we had the buy-in from the critical actors in our community. I think early action is critical. Public information and public education which is consistent, coming from authoritative, authoritative sources, certainly helped with our success story so far. We're talking to Timothy Harris, the Prime Minister of St. Kitts and Nevis. Mr. Prime Minister, 
with an economy like yours that is so heavily driven by travel and tourism, making a decision to close down the entire island had to be a very difficult thing for you to do. It was a very difficult one. But at the same time, our strategy from day one had been that it had to be life first. Some other countries were talking about livelihoods and the economy. For us, if there were not people who are healthy, the economy could not grow. So we look beyond the short term to see this was necessary. If you are going to preserve life, and we saw that as the most critical mandate of the government, life first, life before livelihoods. Because if people were not well, they couldn't create and generate their own livelihoods. So we took those hard decisions very early. We turned back cruise ships, which has been one of the more significant parts of our economic success story before COVID, we were a market port. And for two days in a row, we had received over 1 million cruise passengers. So it was very difficult. But again, based on the health advice, based on the protocols and the science as it had evolved, we felt it was necessary to, as it were, put those other considerations aside and first attempt to save people's lives. That strategy, in the end, led us now to be considered by the Centers for Disease Control in the USA as a very low-risk destination. And we have 19 cases, all fully recovered. We stand perhaps unique in a global world, not having any deaths. And as we speak, no one in our hospitals. This is a fantastic achievement for us. It is. It really is a fantastic achievement, but you also had another challenge because you talk about life versus livelihood. I can tell you as an embarrassed American, we haven't made that distinction very successfully in this country. We have huge spike of cases in in a majority of U.S. states right now. Uh, How did you educate your own citizens to make that distinction? That must have been your biggest challenge. That was our biggest challenge, but as I say, starting early helps. And learning from the experience elsewhere helped graphically to let people understand that this was a disease. And none of you should want to have a disease. So you have to take conscious effort. Very early, our health emergency team was out in the workplace, speaking with the banks, speaking with the supermarkets, saying to them, in the event this thing were to happen or to arrive here, this is what you have to do. You have to begin to put markers in your supermarket as to the distance which people have to keep from one another. You have to have a system of regulation at your door to prevent overcrowding. And we were on radio every day, what we call the National Emergency Operations Center, every day for the better part of the last seven months, providing updates not only about what was happening elsewhere, but when we had our first two cases to begin to greet people and to alert them what were the imperatives. Wear your mask, hand hygiene, social distancing, and we went into emergency powers act to enforce them. That was a critical tool in the fight against COVID-19 because as we locked down, we had to have the security on board to do the enforcement. But the constant, vigorous public education and support from the leadership in government 
help dramatize the urgency of now for the citizens and residents in St. Kitts and Nevis. We went, we had talks, for example, for the operators in homes for the elderly and to let them know, listen, during this period, there must be no visitors. You have to have certain things in place. And we gave support where necessary to those entities that were falling short in the requirements. Again, this strategy has to be life first. Life first, everything else come after. For once we preserve the life, we have an opportunity to deal with the other issues. You're right. I mean, what you really did here, you had a sort of a combination between education plus no, plus zero tolerance. Zero tolerance. And that is what the emergency powers did. Because when we say that after 8 o'clock, there should be no one in the street, then the police were out giving life and meaning to that um, requirement and that imposition. We said that buses would be fine. We established fees. And we also established a um, period of imprisonment for those who would breach the curfew and the emergency powers regulations. Because you have to send a signal. We issued and, and held for some period of time those who in the initial period breached the regulations. Not that we wanted to be punitive, but we had to make an example sure. to everyone that this thing would not be allowed. I think those actions... Difficult as they were in the first um, period of it, helped to galvanize public support and get people conscious. Mr. Prime Minister, it's great that you're reopening today. Uh, you mentioned earlier about cruise ships, which was such, a, which are such a source of your of your incoming arrivals. What lessons have you learned in terms of the protocols that you instituted for everybody else that you are now going to apply to the cruise ships when they start sailing again? Well, that is an important one. And what our tourism operatives have been doing is to work with the Carnival Cruise Line and other crews that would normally visit St. Kitts and Nevis to establish vigorous protocols. Of course, the cruise line themselves have come to understand that unless they have high standards of safety measures, no one will want to board because no one will want to risk their health. We are working with them in terms of the kind of testing that will have to be done and submitted in advance so that our health practitioners have a sense of any danger and any risk and we can mitigate them. The details of those are still a work in progress, but they are being shared and being exchanged and updated so that the best practice is being maintained here in St. Kitts and Nevis. And the protocols for those who are coming by year are almost similar for those that are coming by sea, except those by sea tend to spend a shorter period of time. And so a lot is going to depend upon what is happening on the ship, uh, how, what port they have gone to before arriving in St. Kitts and Nevis, and whether or not they meet the international standards of the CDC and other international bodies. We, which are applying the science. We rely a lot on the World Health Organization, and we are coordinating within the Caribbean islands to CAFA, our regional public health agency, what those standards must be. We are sharing them. We are ensuring that people understand them because that is critical to safe travel, which we want to 
to have here in St. Kitts and Nevis, safe for our citizens and residents, safe for those who come. Mr. Prime Minister, here in Dubrovnik, uh, the mayor, uh, before the pandemic even happened, was confronted with a, a, a term that I'm sure you were thinking about eight months ago, as, re- as the rest of the world was, over-tourism. And he made the ruling uh, eight months ago that the, that the city would never let more than two cruise ships in the harbor at any one time, because otherwise they were on the verge of being overrun by, by cruise ship passengers when you have some of these ships that can carry five and 6,000 passengers each. Are you considering such a limitation? Well, at this particular moment in time, based on our conversations, it's highly unlikely that we are going to have large movement of cruise passengers in the near future. Some of the cruise vessels that are, have already indicated an interest in returning, some European base, they are bringing more high-income passengers and smaller numbers. We are talking about hundreds. We are hitherto the Carnival cruise lines which will come um, they were bringing thousands of passengers in one hall. So we are going to have smaller numbers, and we have, as it were, established what we call a bubble. That is a collection of sites that they can safely go to, and in some ways are insulated from integration with the rest of the local community. So they will move around very safely, participate in selected services in pre-approved um, sites and locales, and at the same time, we give some degree of insulation from the local population, at least in the early period. And we will continue to do that, of course, until we have better results in terms of vaccines and therapeutics and diagnostics to fight the COVID-19 disease. You know, it's interesting because in just a few days, as a number of other countries in the Caribbean reopen as well, we're talking about Costa Rica and Jamaica uh, and Panama further south. Uh, in the case of Costa Rica, they're dealing with another issue that came to, that came home to roost during the pandemic, and that's travel insurance. Uh, and so many people bought travel insurance for their flights or for their tours or for their safaris, only to find out when the pandemic hit that the insurance didn't cover them for pandemics. They had essentially bought worthless policies. Now countries like Costa Rica, for $10 a day, will we'll insure you medically for, for COVID-19, not just for treatment in Costa Rica, but they'll fly you home and pay for your treatment in your host country. Uh, are you considering some, some kind of insurance policies like that? Well, nothing is off the table for Senkis and Nevis. What we will do with something like that is to be part of a regional consensus within the Caribbean of how we move and the travel of insurance. Got it of course, has emerged as a concern. And that is why further afield, we are engaging the critical source markets, USA, Canada, UK, Europe, to say we have to deal with this together collectively. We need you to do certain things. Yep. We need you to support your airlines, etc., etc., ensure their protesting can be done, etc., etc. So all of us really are partnering for common public good, if you will. My thanks to the Prime Minister. And now, to go beyond the Game of Thrones, my chat with the mayor of Dubrovnik in Croatia on how they've managed to stay open to visitors and the lessons they've learned during COVID-19. Joining me now is someone I had the pleasure of meeting two years ago at a conference here in Dubrovnik. 
And uh, I said, whenever I come back, I got to talk to this guy. He's the mayor of uh, Dubrovnik, Mata Frankovic. How are you, sir? Very well. You know, we've all gone through a terrible time in the year 2020. Uh, the European Union has banned American travelers. They're continuing to have spikes in, in cases, as we are. Uh, but somehow, uh, Croatia has managed to stay open and be welcoming to American passengers. I'm one of them. I'm here. First of all, why did you make the decision to do that, and how have you been able to do it? I would like to say that first, uh, Croatia has a very long partnership with the United States. Uh, the second thing is that uh, after uh, UK uh, travel market, the USA is number second uh, market uh, in uh, Dubrovnik area. So we were really pushing hard to our government in order to uh, find a way and find a solution for US citizens to come to Croatia because uh, we really rely a lot on US market. We, are you, are uh, you trying to say you need us? Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. yes. Yes, absolutely, and uh, this is why we we continue. Uh, we were continuing to be uh, open for U.S. Uh, citizens, and if you are looking at the COVID measures, the numbers didn't rise because of the things that Croatia let U.S. citizens in. So uh, definitely, the COVID is within us. Uh, probably, maybe in two or three years' time, we will think back about all decisions that we made and especially about decisions that we made and uh, many countries uh, follow it, is uh, the one to abandon travel. Was it good or not? Why didn't we maybe thought at the beginning the things that we are doing right now, uh, if you have a COVID negative test, you are welcome to come here in the area. Otherwise, you have, of course, stay home if you are COVID positive get better, and then again, you can freely travel. So this is a problem that actually occurred considering tourism, not on the national or creational level, but on the world level. I got it. You know, it's interesting and ironic that nine months ago, we would have had a conversation about over-tourism. We would have had a conversation on how to manage the numbers. We would have had a conversation on cruise ships, right? And all of a sudden, everything got put on hold. But in a way... It's given Dubrovnik and Croatia and every country in the world that had those sort of problems and challenges an opportunity to maybe do a do-over, a reset, to rethink how you are going to approach tourism moving forward. And I'm assuming you've done that. Absolutely. So I would say this is our second chance. First chance that Dubrovnik had was back in the 1991, in the time of war. Uh, very few people can recall the scenarios before the war, when Dubrovnik had over tourism in the same time, that back in the 90s. I first came here in 1985, in 1988, and in 1992, I came in right at the end of the war. I still saw all the shelling damage in the old city. So then you know how uh, the tourism looked like back in the 80s. Uh, I still have my old dinars. Do you? <laughs> yeah, you're laughing. I had the old Yugoslavian dinars. Yeah. Maybe maybe it will be good for the history museum. That's about all it's good for yeah. right now. I know. <laughs> uh, back in the 1991, on 6th of December, uh, UNESCO observers uh, wrote a letter to UNESCO headquarters. That was the day when Dubrovnik was uh, having bombed uh, from all over, from seaside, airside, landside. It was surrounded. 
what they wrote in that letter is that Dubrovnik is going to be rebuilt, refurbished. But it needs to take care right now what is going to be in the future with this town because if this town does not take an action, it's going to be overcrowded town. And that is what happened actually to Dubrovnik later on because people were without jobs, hotels were empty, etc. And all of the people wanted more and more guests. That was the key to your economic future. Absolutely. But, but there are that was, yeah, there should be a limits which were not put at that time. So maybe you can uh, recall the conference that we had two years ago when I was speaking about the cruise industry. And I said, guys, do not forget that here in Dubrovnik, back at the beginning of uh, 2000, we were waiting for the cruise ship with marching bands. And now all of you want just them to leave. So this is not a solution. Solution is to find a combination between uh, the guests that are coming with the airplane, those that are coming with the cruise ship, and those are, that are coming on the daily excursions. And actually, we really did manage that for this year. But then... This year blew up. This year blew up. Which is not bad. Because on the first thing, it is going to show to local population, to the citizens of Dubrovnik, that we really rely on tourism and that we live out of it. When you and I spoke two years ago, uh, it was, do you limit the cruise ships or do you let them all come in at the same time? I remember there was a time I saw five ships here one day. You may have even had six. Uh, that was crazy. I remember going to the entrance to the old city and I mean, I couldn't move. Uh, and, and by the way, I've never seen Game of Thrones. I've never seen it, okay? <laughs> so I'm not one of those guys, but I could have been, right? Now, as I walk through Dubrovnik, it's the best time in the world for me to be here because I own it. I feel, but that's, that's also on the other end of the spectrum for you. You need to form that middle ground, don't you? The middle is the best. Uh, the middle is the best for Dubrovnik citizens. The middle is the best for the tourists that are coming to Dubrovnik because they want to have a quality of provided service, which uh, when you have a five cruise ships at the same time, the service is bad. And uh, no one can see Dubrovnik. Actually, you just see the crowd of people. So this is what we actually negotiated with the CLIA uh, Cruise uh, Corporation uh, and we spoke with them and said, okay, guys, we can handle two cruise ships at the same time. And not, that's it. And not that's more it. than that. That's it. With that, your clients are going to be very, very happy. They'll have a better experience. And the citizens are going to be even happier. So this is a win-win solution. And finally, we, we agreed on that. And uh, I hope when the tourism season starts in 2021, uh, I can tell you that we have a first announcement. Uh, we have a boat, Viking Cruises, that announced his first arrival on 8th, January 8th. Which is early. Which is very, very early. And all of the clients are Americans. Well, this will be the test cruise. Yep, it's going to be a test cruise and it will cruise just on Croatian coast. So Dubrovnik, Split, Šibenik, Zadar and back to Dubrovnik. Wow, and you'll be able to manage that. Yep, absolutely. And we are ready for that. And uh, which is something which is very good. They established 
actually a COVID center on that cruise ship. And most cruise ships are going to have to do that. Yeah, yes. This exactly. is uh, uh, something we can call it new normal. Which is where all the other passengers will not be disenfranchised. If somebody tests positive, they have a way of quarantining them in an effective way. Yes, yes. Now, I've got to ask you this one question. I hope you don't laugh. But I remember two years ago in Dubrovnik, in the old city, if you want to know about overtourism and overcrowding, I could not walk more than 12 feet without seeing an ATM. Every 12 feet was an ATM. It's like, how many ATMs do you need, right? Rumor has it you've taken a few out. We've taken majority of them out. We said this has to stop because uh, ATMs are giving complete different picture of the Brovnik. It seems like the old part of the Brovnik, it's a cash machine. <laughs> so we just move it out, a majority of them. Of course, that's still few left, yeah. but they don't give you an image of the cash machine Dubrovnik. I mean, you will agree with me. I'm not exaggerating. I could not walk 20 feet in the old city without seeing a cash machine in two years. 47 of them. How many? 47. Oh, my God. In small, tiny, old town. Yeah, unbelievable. Ridiculous. Yes. Yes. So the good news is you're never going to see more than two cruise ships here at any one time. Uh, Hopefully, yes. you'll get your air service back. You had an amazing flight, a nonstop flight from Philadelphia to Dubrovnik on American that was doing very well in 2019. And, of course, they just pulled out during the pandemic. Yes. And there's no guarantee yet that they're going to come back. But, again, there is a, there's a market for that. They are uh, showing a great interest. And we have interest from U.S. market uh, for Croatia, for Dubrovnik. And uh, we do hope that uh, that flight is, uh, will come back. Uh, not majority of people that are coming with Dubrovnik, to Dubrovnik from the United States actually are coming through the Italy or through the uh, Poland, the, depending which uh, flights are better flight connection for them. But uh, the flight from Philadelphia to Dubrovnik back in 2019 was fully occupied, fully occupied. And really, we have a big interest from U.S. market. And we do hope that when the things are going to be back in the normal, when we will have a medicine, vaccine, and etc., that uh, that's going to happen, we hope, at well, the beginning of 2021. Otherwise, we are going to lose the season 221 as well. Well, Mr. Mayor, I can tell you that my experience here has been terrific. I don't feel crowded. I feel in, in, entitled in a way. It's, it's, a, it's amazing. And I walked down the stairs of shame, never having seen Game of Thrones. I just want to say that. <laughs> Great. <laughs> my thanks to the mayor. And last but not least, a different kind of road trip, duplicating the strange and criminal itineraries and routes of the New York Mafia with Michael Cannell, author of A Brotherhood Betrayed. There's a great story out there, a brand new book that's just come out. It's called The Brotherhood Betrayed, uh, the man behind the rise and fall of Murder Incorporated. Now, what does that have to do with travel? It might surprise you that the mob like to go places. And you can actually follow the history of organized crime from some very interesting and some iconic and some not so iconic American cities. And joining us now, the author of that book, Michael Cannell. How are you, Michael? Hey, Peter. Thank you for having me. So, you know, when I think about, you know, uh, Murder, Inc., you know, we, we forget that even back at the beginnings of the mob, uh, they were traveling all over the United States. They were They were building up their their empire. And it wasn't just New York, it was Las Vegas, it was California, 
It was Cleveland. Uh, and those places are still there and the, where, where things happened. Yeah, that's true. What happened after Prohibition is that the mob, really at that time headed by Lucky Luciano, made a concerted effort to uh, create a coast-to-coast network of, of mobs. Uh, and they were um, a kind of confederacy. And um, they created an assassination squad. And if there was any trouble with anybody in their, in their respective cities, Chicago or Detroit or Los Angeles, they would dispatch somebody from Murder Incorporated the the assassination squad and they would travel to these cities really like like just like businessmen they would pack an overnight bag they would have a <laughs> a clean set of clothes and uh, a toothbrush and uh, by the way they would also have a gun and an ice pick and and a length of a length of rope they would fly into the into their cities on or always traveling by plane interestingly and they would. Uh, fly into these cities, and they would be met by the local affiliates, uh, and they would do their job. They would uh, do their hit, and then they would get on the next uh, the next flight back. And so the mob operated almost like like McDonald's in those days. They had franchises all over the country, and they they traveled back and forth. And uh, Los Angeles was very much part of this, of course, because they were trying to move move into Los Angeles, and, and this was the time when they were, Bugsy Siegel was trying to create Las Vegas. So there was the, the beginning of the desert, um, desert gambling empire was beginning at that time as well. Well, you know, this strikes me as probably the first example of the true frequent flyer road warrior, if you will, because these guys were armed. They were definitely frequent flyers. I mean, the murder, nobody... the. The, the murdering didn't keep track of their of their hits, but by some estimates, they killed as many as a thousand people. I don't know that that's true, but certainly hundreds. Um, and so they were they were like uh, they were like an army of business travelers who happened to have this one particular specialty. And they had favorite locations. They had favorite hotels. They had favorite hangouts, which many of them are still around today. That's true. In, in each of these, in each of these towns, they would um, they would be received by the local their local affiliates, and they would be wined and dined and uh, and and entertained. And there, this was the 1930s, so it was kind of an era of of, of grand old hotels, and and they would stay there. And they lived large. They they gambled. They drank. They went to prohibition nightclubs they they lived well and if it's possible if it's possible to have fun when you're on such an assignment they did and it wasn't just the streets of brooklyn or coney island it was manhattan it was los angeles it was chicago it was you know the best hotels the best restaurants they tipped big and then they killed each other that's exactly right and they were really killing each other they were not killing civilians um for the most part, they were killing people that were suspected of being informants uh, or people who could become informants. And so it was very, it was very organized and very, uh, and and very businesslike. And um, they would often get out of town, get on the next flight, and get out of town before the police could round up any suspects. 
often they didn't know who they were killing. They didn't even know their name or what their infraction was until they flew back home. And then they would read about it in the next day's newspaper. See, one of the things that was surprising to me in reading the book is that you would think in the 30s they'd be hopping a train as opposed to getting on a plane. No, I mean, the only time I heard about these 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 figures taking the train is when they went to jail. I mean, then when they went to Sing Sing, <laughs> then, they took, then they took the train. No, they would, they, you know, these were larger-than-life figures, and they made a lot of money in the, during the Prohibition. They, way before upgrades, way before mileage programs, way before metal detectors at airports, but they figured out a way to, to use the airlines to... Uh, go city to city as enforcers and, in many cases, as murderers. Is there one particular hotel or one particular location that they just couldn't stay away from, Michael? You know, the one, the one location that they would pro- drive to and not fly was, was the Catskills, the mountains about 80 miles northwest of where they were based in, in Brooklyn. And at that time, in the 1930s, uh, the Catskills were emerging as a destination for middle-class Jews in the New York area. And there were casinos, there were speakeasies, there were hotels. I don't know that any of the hotels from that era are still around, but that was, that was if you were a mobster, particularly in Murder Incorporated in the 1930s, that's where you went for fun on your spare time, was, was the Catskills. And... Uh, in, in, it, it was very popular with the mobster Dutch Schultz, who was one of the titanic figures of that era. And when Dutch Schultz was being about to be prosecuted for tax evasion, by the way, he took a lot of his wealth. This would be cash, it would be gold, it would be jewels, and he put it in a trunk uh, nobody knows how much was in that trunk between $5 million and $10 million. And he hid it in the Catskill Mountains. And nobody, nobody has ever found it. Um, uh, Dutch Schultz was killed. He was shot by some of his own men in 1935. He didn't die right away. He went to the hospital, and he had a 106-degree fever, and in his feverish state, in the hours before he died, he talked about this trunk and hinted. He gave hints in a kind of delirium where it might be. And he mentioned the town of Phoenicia, New York, which is up there in the Catskills. And so there's been, an, ever since then, there's been a kind of, um, a kind of gangster's treasure hunt has taken place that people have, people have, uh, poured over the hills, the beautiful hills of the Catskills, and tried to figure out where that trunk is. It's still there somewhere. <laughs> so if we go back to that original movie with Richard Dreyfuss, The Apprenticeship of Duty Kravitz in the Catskills, while that was going on, these guys were out there lounging. They were, and it was for them it was also a favorite place to bury bodies. Um, they buried so many bodies there that in fact one of the Farmers in the Catskills told the police department that he was scared to plow up his field because he said every time, every time he plowed up his field, he found a body. Ooh, not a good track record. <laughs> no, no. So, from a travel perspective, you can still go up to the Catskills and basically be in the same location, walk the same streets, and bring a shovel. 
You can bring your shovel, yeah. And um, I mean, it's a glorious place. It's a glorious place to go in 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 any case. But the, you, you know, there was a reason that they went there, and that was that it's beautiful. There are many lakes and ponds, and uh, and and it's uh, and it's mountainous, and it's not that far from New York. Exactly. When you say lakes, that means it's convenient to uh, drop bodies in. Which they did. In fact, one of them was tied to a slot machine. Uh, slot machines were very <laughs> lucrative for the mob back then. They found that this gentleman named Walter Sage was skimming the profits from their illegal prop, uh, slot machines. They killed him, with, stabbed him 35 times with an ice pick, and then tied his body to a slot machine threw it into a lake, and then on a beautiful July day, while everyone was swimming and canoeing around the lake, his body bobbed to the surface. Whoops. Now, of course, the question I have to ask is, whatever happened to the slot machine? To, the, to that slot machine? That I couldn't tell you. <laughs> oh, man, I love it. The name of the book, A Brotherhood Betrayed, The Man Behind the Rise and Fall of Murder Incorporated, and the author, Michael Cannell, a fascinating read, and a, and a really good tour of uh, a, a side of the Catskills that most folks had no idea about. And the stories are still told today. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. My thanks to Michael, to the mayor of Dubrovnik, and the prime minister of St. Kitts. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to listen, rate, and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for continuous updates on breaking travel news, you can always log on to petergreenberg.com. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds, but none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.